Good morning, dear saints. It's great to see you all. There's a lot of you for first service. You guys are trying to make me nervous or something. It's been a while since I've been up here, and I am just pumped and excited to do my favorite thing in the world, truly, to bring God's word to God's people and those who aren't yet God's people. So welcome to you all in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, if you're new here this morning and you don't know who I am, I'm Chad. I'm the pastor in training here, no longer pastoral intern. I got the big promotion to pastor in training a few weeks ago. Thank you, yeah. Um, and I'll be a pastor here someday in the not-too-distant future unless you all go to our pastors and say, nope, that guy's not gifted and not called and don't let him be a pastor. And I'm trusting that's not going to be the case. Um, let's pray. Let's start by praying. Heavenly Father, we joyfully come together this morning to worship you and praise you, to, to just acknowledge you for who you are, God. You're the creator of the universe. You're the only God. You're the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King, our treasure, our Lord. And you are the sender of the Holy Spirit who dwells in your people and those who you have purchased through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. We trust, Lord, that um, you will be glorified this morning through the praise of your people, through our singing and prayers and fellowship, and now the preaching of your word. And I pray that you would be with me as I bring your word to your people. And for those with us this morning, Lord, who might not be yours, I pray that you would use me as a mouthpiece to, to call them to believe in your son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. And Lord, for those who are your people, I pray that you would help them grow in uh, honor and reverence for you and a desire to to honor your name and word and deed in everything that we do say think and feel so be glorified this morning we pray in Jesus name amen so we're continuing our series through the book of Malachi you heard just read the text that I'll be preaching on this morning Malachi 2 uh, verses 1 through 9 Again, if you're visiting here with, this, with us this morning, that is the normal rhythm for us. Occasionally, we will do a topical series, but usually we just preach consecutively through books of the Bible. So many of you know that I help with the student ministry, shameless plug for student ministry. We have middle school on Wednesday nights, and we have high school on Sunday nights. Pastor Stephen oversees the entire student ministry, and he leads the high school on Sunday nights, and I lead the middle school on Wednesday nights, but I also help with high school on Sunday nights. And it seems like in these last few months, whether intentionally as we teach the word to the students or we do small groups every time we gather with the students, it seems like Stephen and I have been um, talking a lot to the youth lately about root and fruit. It's just been coming up a lot, and I'm I guess a lot of you know what I mean when I say that, but if those are a little bit maybe too Christianese of words, what I mean by root and fruit are root is heart and fruit is actions. So we've been talking a lot with the students about when you have a, a good root, when you have a new heart, when you've repented and believed the gospel, God, it's evidence God has given you a new heart and that's going to play out in their actions and vice versa when we have a bad root, a sinful heart. It's going to be played out in our actions. And as I was 
studying this week and considering Stephen's sermon last week, what I, what I realized was it seems like um, last week's sermon, chapter 1, verses 6 through 14, the, the Lord's main thrust was, that the, was the priest's actions, their fruit, their offering polluted offerings. The things that they're doing are sinful and evil. And this morning, the Lord is going to indict the priests for their, for their root, for their heart. Now, we could argue that there's fruit and root in each of these passages, but it seems like there is a main thrust this morning. We will see some actions this morning in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, but the Lord really brings it to the heart level and says, your root is bad, and therefore what we've just seen in verses 6 through 14, your, your fruit was bad. So the, the structure this morning will be to look at it this way. I hope you guys will be able to follow me. I'm going to be really explicit about um, verse references because we're going to be bouncing around a lot, but I didn't do that to be confusing. I hopefully am doing this to be clear, and hopefully it's going to be up here in a second. The structure is the corruption of the priests, and we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 and verses 8 and 9. Is it up there? Great. Okay. And then the second point will be the consequence of the priests. We'll look at verses 2 through 4 and verse 9. And then the third point will be the covenant purpose of a priest, verses 5 through 7. I'll kill a little time here while you guys are writing so he doesn't move on. Corruption of the priests, beginning and end. Consequence of the priests, beginning and end. And then the covenant purpose of a priest will be the third point in verses 5 through 7. Following me? I think that's going to be helpful. Hopefully you understand that at the end of the sermon. The main point, I believe, of this text for us this morning is that the purpose of a priest is wholehearted devotion to honoring God's name in word and deed. I'll say that again as well. The purpose of a priest is wholehearted devotion to honoring God's name in word and deed. So first, let's consider the corruption of the priests. We're going to see that in verses 1 and 2. And verses 8 and 9. We saw last week how corrupt the priests were in verses 6 through 14. The Lord is angry with the priests for their irreverent, half-hearted, empty worship as displayed in their polluted offerings. Their fruit is bad. They're offering horrible sacrifices to God. Blind animals, lame animals, and God is angry. A reminder... They have not honored or feared God. They've despised his name. God says what they've done is evil. He says it would have been better for the temple to be closed rather than to offer their blasphemous worship. They've profaned God's name. They're weary and they snort at serving God. And God says, curse be the chief who says he's going to offer something good to me and then offers a lame animal. And now in this passage, we're going to see more of their corruption. Okay, so... Let's look at verses 1 and 2 together. It says, And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you and curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. We're going to skip over that cursing and talk about that in the second point, but let's look at the corruption. First, the Lord says, The priests must listen. And take to heart what God is saying through his prophet, Malachi. The word listen there in the Hebrew is the well-known Hebrew word Shema. Many of you probably are familiar with that word, even if you don't know much Hebrew, like I don't. And that word would make the original audience, and maybe even some of us, think of Deuteronomy 6, at least verses 4 and 5. Many of us have that memorized, but maybe even 4 through 9. 
It's known as the Shema. That's how Jews would know it. That's how I know it. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. The Shema. It says this. Hear, O Israel. Shema is the word. Shema, O Israel. The Lord our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And then that those verses go on to say things that Israel must do. They must teach them to their kids. Talk about it as they walk by the way and as they sit. Write it on their doorposts. Keep it as frontlets between their eyes and write it on their hands. So the word listen, the word shema means more than just hear something and carry on living your life however you want. It means listen and obey. Listen attentively with the intent to obey, to heed this command. If the priests won't listen and obey, if they won't take to heart to give honor to God's name, then God will curse them and their blessings. Heart here in the Bible refers to more than just love. All throughout the Bible, whenever the Bible uses heart, it refers to more than just love and emotions. It is that, but it's so much more. It refers to the inner man. The mind, the will, the emotions, the thinking, the inclination, the resolution, the determination. I heard one say that the heart is the entire command center of the human being. Like the cockpit of a plane. It doesn't go anywhere without the cockpit. Like we don't go anywhere without our command center. And that's what our heart is. And the Lord was calling these priests to repent of their low view of him and resolve to honor his name. To take it into their hearts. Absence of reverent worship in their hands, which we saw in verses 6 through 14 last week, was indicative of absence of reverent worship in their hearts. If they would take it into their hearts, it would naturally flow to their hands. And brothers and sisters, it's the same for us. If we want to honor God in our home, it starts in our hearts. If we want to honor Him in our community, it starts in our command center. So what do we do if we realize we don't have reverent awe and desire to honor God in our hearts? Here's a few things I meditated on. First is pray. I think that's a good place to start anytime the Lord is convicting you in any sermon. Pray. Lord, I don't feel like I have that much honor and reverence and desire to honor your name. Lord, please help me. Uh, bring it to your community group whether it be men and women, or maybe you have a, a life transformation group that you meet with inside of your community group. Tell brothers or sisters, like, hey, I really want to grow in like, my desire to honor and revere God and live for his glory. Another idea, if you're a book nerd like me, I'm always recommending books to you guys. Read R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, or J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. One that just came to me as I was doing a mic check this morning is memorize large chunks of scripture. You can join Trent and I, I'm, I'm bringing you in with me, to memorize Job 38 verses 2 through 41 verse 10 or something when God tells Job how amazing he, it is. We got to stick to it now, right? We grow, we're growing though in, in the reverence of God as we memorize that passage. But chiefly, I would argue, continue to study God's Word, brothers and sisters. This is the inerrant, infallible Word of God. And by His Spirit, He causes us to become more Christ-like as we read and study this Word alone and with the saints. May God continue to use these means to enable us to live for His glory and honor Him in the way He deserves. Unfortunately, it seems the priests weren't going to lay it to heart. You see at the end of verse 2, it says, Because... You do not lay it to heart. 
So instead of moving on, like I've said, we're going to jump down to verses 8 and 9 because that conti- we continue to see more of their corruption. So jump with me in your Bibles to verses 8 and 9. We see a few more ways that they're corrupt. First, at the beginning of verse 8, it says, they've turned aside from the way. We'll see what is meant by the way in verses 5 through 7, but in short, it means fulfill your purpose, O priests. Be upright and godly. Offer wholehearted worship by offering your best and teaching and living the truth. They weren't doing that. They turned aside from the way. Second, we see in the second half of verse 8, you've caused many to stumble by your instruction. It's one thing to turn aside from the way and another to teach others to turn with you. And that's what the priests are doing. This is probably a way that the Lord has cursed their blessings The ministry of the priest, as we are about to see, is to help people turn from sin. And it's a blessing to be on the front lines of that ministry. But instead of turning people from iniquity, they're leading people into it. There is great consequence to false teachers who don't repent, whose ministries cause many people to stumble. What's the point of a ministry if it turns people to sin? There's no point, and it shouldn't be called a ministry. That's why I used air quotes. Third, at the end of verse 8, we see they've corrupted the covenant with Levi. This is a reference to the covenant God made with the tribe of Levi, who were the priestly tribe in Israel. You could only be a priest of Israel if you were of the tribe of Levi. Some of you have heard the priesthood referred to as the Levitical priesthood. Now, there aren't any... There isn't one explicit text that refers to a Levitical covenant. We, we read about God's covenant with the tribe of Levi in many places from Genesis through Deuteronomy. That's the first five books of the Bible. So in those first five books, we read of God's covenant with the Levites, how they will be as priests and the holiness that's required of them and um, the offerings they had to offer and just all of their duties. I, I, I went through Genesis through Deuteronomy and I found like 15 cross-references. I love you enough not to read all 15 cross-references to you, but I landed on a couple that I think will be helpful. Um, one of them's pretty well known. It's God's blessing to Aaron. He was the first priest ever. He was of the tribe of Levi. It's called the Aaronic blessing, I think. It's in Numbers 6 verses 22 through 27. It says this, should be up here too, good. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons, okay, this priestly tribe, thus you shall bless the people of Israel and you shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Okay, so there we see part of God's purpose for his covenant priesthood. Then we read another section about the zeal of Phineas. He was a grandson of Aaron, and I'll keep it PG, but he, he killed an Israelite who was uh, guilty of some pretty blatant sin. You can read about it in Numbers 25, 10 through 13. But what you need to know is Phineas killed a guy for being sinful in the midst of the people. And it says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eliezer, Son of Aaron the priest has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel and my jealousy. Therefore, say, behold, I give him my covenant of peace. We're going to see that in verses 5 through 7 of Malachi 2. 
and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. More cross-references could be used, you guys, but the point is this. The priesthood was a covenant between God and the Levites that was meant to be a blessing. The priests were meant to be lead worshipers and lead the people to life and peace with God. They would offer sacrifices, and they were meant to teach sound doctrine. But the priests of Malachi's day had turned what was supposed to be a blessing to God, themselves, and Israel into a corruption. The, the final way we see their corrupted hearts is at the end of verse 9. They show partiality in their instruction. Partiality means unjust, preferential treatment. Most commentators said the tempt- this only means preferential treatment for the rich and the powerful, but I think they could show partiality in any way. Uh, but it was a temptation to favor maybe rich or powerful people. But it can just mean, like I said, showing favoritism based on any worldly social distinctions. The priests were showing favoritism somehow to the people. They weren't being objective in their judgments or their ministry. Which shows an important thing about their hearts, the corruption of their hearts. They feared man more than they feared God. They wanted to rub shoulders and please these people they were showing partiality to more than they wanted to honor God and dispense their ministry objectively and justly. Excuse me. The problem with the priests, corrupt hearts that don't honor God as he ought to be honored, brothers and sisters, is the same problem we have. And every human being has apart from Christ. This is a hard truth to accept. I recently listened to a sermon that said actually this is probably the most hated doctrine of Christianity, which in my opinion is a reason why we can trust that this book is not made up by men because it says you're all sinners and you all deserve an eternity in hell. I read, some of you have heard something that recently came out, a survey I highly commend it to you. It's called The State of Theology done by Ligonier Ministries. You can go to thestateoftheology.com and get a good view of what many evangelicals in America believe. And it is both motivating to study sound doctrine and teach it, and completely discouraging at just the lack of basic theological understanding that evangelicals have in America. Listen to this horrifying statistic. According to the survey, 65% of professing evangelicals believe humans are born innocent. Tabula rasa, blank slate. Brothers and sisters, the clear teaching of God's word is that we are not born innocent. We're not born with a desire to honor God. We're born and we come into the world as sinners with corrupt hearts, with no natural inclination to love or honor God. And I'm a parent of a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-year-old. Thank you. Parents are laughing, like, duh. If you deny this, the total depravity of a baby, even of a kid, then you're naive or you're just not a parent. <laughs> I'm having to teach my kids to share and to not live for their own kingdom and to not punch each other in the face and laugh about it. I love them. They're cute, and they're little sinners, and I'm praying for their salvation. 
genuinely all the time. And for your guys and part of community group, we're always praying, Lord, save our kids. <clears throat> we see the corruption in ourselves, if we're honest. This book is a mirror. It's meant to show us our own sinfulness. And we see that. We see it in our children. And we see it in the priests of Malachi's day. And because of their corruption, consequence was coming, and it was already there. So let's look at the consequence of the priests, verses 2 through 4 and verse 9. So at the end of verse 2, it says, uh, I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them. This is probably a reference to Deuteronomy 28, where the Lord describes curses for covenant disobedience. Terrifying, brothers and sisters. I read Deuteronomy 28 a couple times this week. And A, it was scary, but B, it caused deep worship to rise in my heart. Because when you read about the God of the universe being totally and wholeheartedly against you, it is so scary. And yet knowing that in Christ, he's totally and wholeheartedly for you is an amazing gift, an amazing grace that, that will cause worship, I believe. But in Deuteronomy 28, as we read of the consequences for covenant disobedience, it included failure of crops, one among many. But I say that to say we read in Malachi chapter 3, verse 11, that crops are failing. So we will see in verses 5 through 7 the, the purpose of the priest's ministry, that it's meant to be a blessing for them and for the people, but they aren't fulfilling that purpose. And in fact, they're doing the opposite, so there will be consequences. And verses 3 and 9 detail more of what those consequences will be. I'll read verse 3, and then you can skip ahead with me, and we'll read, uh, I think, the beginning of verse 9. Yeah, It says this, Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces. The dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. And so, at verse 9, and so I make you despised and abased before all the people. First, the Lord says he will rebuke their offspring. Offspring in the Hebrew, and some of you have a little footnote that, that says the original Hebrew word is seed. Um, this usually and most likely refers to offspring, children. So the translation is correct, but I found a lot of commentators thought this could be a double meaning because it also could literally mean the seed of a crop, could mean the seed of a crop and offspring, children, and rebuke of children and crops are both part of the curses of disobedience described in Deuteronomy 28. So either way, if, if the Lord rebukes the, the children of the priest, if all it means is children, then, then the priesthood would be discontinued. Just like the Lord said in verse 10 of chapter 1, that it would be better for the temple to be closed. Let's close the temple, let's end the priesthood. Because that would be better than what you guys are offering and doing now. Second, here we go, take a deep breath with me, one, two, three. The Lord says he will spread dung on their faces. The dung of their offerings, and they will be taken away with it. <clears throat> Once we let the awkward smile rightly fall from our faces as we read that, we'd be prone to hold our hands to our mouths and cover the ears of our children. The thrice holy God isn't just a little peeved with those who are tasked to represent him. He's livid. 
He's disgusted. He can barely contain himself. What a shameful, disgusting embarrassment it would be for the priests. But even more than that, and I hope you guys will give me grace here, I use this word theologically, what a damnation it would be to have that happen to you by the living God. The word dung there does mean dung, but it means the unclean internal organs of sacrificial animals that included excretory contents. If you've read the Old Testament, you read that they were meant to remove this from the animal, take it outside of the camp or the city and burn it. It was unclean. It had no place in the people of God, no place near the thrice holy God. The Lord warns he will shame them. And he will use what was meant to make the priest ritually clean and make them even dirtier. And take them out of the city and burn them along with the refuse. And as verse 9 says, they will be despised and abased before all the people. If that warning isn't sobering, I don't know what is. And because of this same heart corruption that lies in the heart of every human being, we all deserve terrifying consequences. They had corrupted the covenant with Levi, and there would be consequences because they weren't fulfilling the covenant purposes of the priesthood. So let's look at point number three, covenant purpose of a priest, verses five through seven. Verse five says, My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. First, we see that the covenant with Levi was a covenant of life and peace, and God gave them to him. God wants to give and gives his people life, as we read in the New Testament, abundant life, eternal life, which can only come with peace with him. We have to have peace with God to have life. God wants his people to thrive, not just survive. And so he instituted the priesthood so that his people could dwell with him and live under his rule and experience his blessing. A life of peace between Israel and God or mankind and God don't come unless God gives them. And that's what he gave to the priests and he gives to his people. He, he gave them to Levi and Levi was meant to return to God fear, it says. He Levi gave God fear and he stood in honor of God or in awe of God's name. The fear of God is all over the scriptures. It's everywhere. And and many people don't totally understand what it means. It doesn't mean to be completely terrified of God or treat God like a, a terrifying character in a scary movie. Or to treat him like like a scary dad who you're always walking on eggshells with. You don't know when he's gonna lash out and he can't wait to rip you for your shortcoming. It's not the kind of fear that you're completely afraid of. The second half of verse 5 helps us understand what it means. It says, he stood in awe of my name. To fear God means to have a deep and reverent awe of who he is and what he's capable of and how he has loved us. We also see throughout the scriptures that the fear of God is knowing the difference between yourself or any other sinful human and God. We see this powerfully in Isaiah chapter 6. I feel like I reference this all the time. It's one of my favorites, but Isaiah has this vision of God. God 
shows him himself and his glory and on his throne. And Isaiah sees God. And what does he say? Woe to me. He's pronouncing a curse on himself. That's what that, that word means in the Hebrew. Woe to me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the people, in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He sees God, and he, and he knows how little and small and sinful he is, and how great and glorious and holy and majestic God is. And this reverential fear is what the priests were meant to give God. And apparently Levi did respond to the Lord with fear, and other priests did too. He, he stood in awe of his name, as we see at the end of verse 5. So God gives life and peace to his people through his priest, and the priest humbly accepts his commission with reverent fear and awe. And now we look at the priest's words and deeds, what they're supposed to be. In verses 6 and 7, it says, True instruction was in his mouth. And no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and the people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So first, let's consider the priest's words. The priest's words are meant to be true, to offer true instruction. No wrong should be found on his lips. He can't be a liar his lips should guard knowledge, and the people should seek instruction from him. The priest must teach what is true and help guide the people into the way of life and peace. His teaching was also supposed to guard knowledge. That means he should teach sound doctrine and also be able to refute false teachings and beliefs. The priest was meant to study hard and teach hard. But his words couldn't be the only way he lived a God-honoring life. He had to live out the truth. Middle of verse 6, he walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. The priest's life was to align with his beliefs. We can all spot a religious hypocrite, can't we? Someone who speaks the truth and doesn't live it out. Usually we can even tell the first time we hear someone's sermon if they really believe what they're saying or not. Or even just in a conversation. It doesn't necessarily even have to be a sermon. First Timothy 4.16 says this. It's a New Testament counterpart. Paul saying to Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Or another translation, keep a close watch on your life and your doctrine. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. In their speaking and living, the priests were to be used by God to turn many people from iniquity. But as we saw, they were causing many people to stumble, to fall into sin and iniquity. And, and why all this living and speaking? The end of verse 7, 4 he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. The priests had to live and teach sound doctrine because they were messengers of Yahweh. They did not have permission to teach whatever they wanted or live however they wanted. They were representatives, ambassadors, servants of God Almighty, the Lord of hosts. 
A servant of the Lord must be wholeheartedly devoted to honoring the Lord in word and deed. That's the covenant standard for a priest. And the priests of Malachi's day were corrupt, and if they didn't repent, there would be huge consequences because they fell short of the covenant standard of a priest. And as I've said, I'll say it again, the corruption in their hearts is also in ours. And apart from repentance, we too would deserve a huge consequence because we too fall short of a covenant standard. But brothers and sisters, we're, we're new covenant Christians. Malachi is not the last book of our Bible. We can turn the page a couple pages and read of King Jesus, the great high priest, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Paul's letters. We can read the book of Hebrews and preach through the whole book of Hebrews like we just did and read of the great high priest. So as we consider what these verses mean for us, first we have to consider Christ. And then briefly we'll consider our pastors and then ourselves. We read, we, we studied through the book of Hebrews that even the Levitical priests weren't perfect. They pointed to and foreshadowed the need for a perfect priest. Not a priest after the Levitical line, but a priest after the Melchizedekian line. I'm not trying to impress you with that word. If you're new to church, I can't re-preach Hebrews, but it's this guy who just barely shows up on the scene in Genesis named Melchizedek, and apparently there was going to be a greater priest who came after him, and his name is Jesus Christ. And there was only two guys in that priestly line, Melchizedek and Jesus. And Jesus is the perfect priest we needed. Listen to Hebrews 7, verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? Perfection wasn't attainable through the Levitical priesthood, but it is through Christ. Jesus Christ had no corruption in his heart. He was not deserving of any consequence, and he is a perfect priest. He is the perfect messenger of the Lord of hosts. He received the covenant of life and peace, and he perfectly mediates it for his people. He had a perfect fear of the Father and perfectly stood in awe of his name. True instruction was in Jesus' mouth. He came on the scene and started most of his sentences with truly, truly, I say to you. He never told a lie. He walked with the Father and the Holy Spirit in peace and uprightness and he has turned billions from iniquity. He guarded knowledge. And people have sought instruction from the Lord Jesus Christ since the day he came to earth. He's not a messenger. He's the messenger. And therefore, he deserved no consequence. Brothers and sisters, he deserved no consequence. And yet, in love for his people and in perfect reverent fear for the Father to glorify his name, he was taken outside the city and treated like refuse for me and you. He was crucified on the cross in our place and received the consequence we deserve for our corrupt hearts. And if you've repented of your corruption, if you've believed in Jesus Christ as your great high priest, then perfection has been attained for you. It's been counted to you. It's been credited to you. 
Praise God. If you're here this morning and you don't follow Jesus, I, I offer him to you now as his mouthpiece. Come to Jesus. Acknowledge you have a corrupt heart. Maybe you've never committed adultery and never murdered, but you haven't lived absolutely perfectly for the glory of God every second of every day for your whole life. And you're deserving of an eternal consequence. But Jesus paid it for you. If you will believe in him, you'll be saved. The, the perfect standard is met towards you and he, and he gives it to you. And you'll notice this new heart in you that wants to live for his glory. Not, not to perform, not to earn anything, but because of what he's done for you. That's the main point. That's the main application of this sermon and any sermon is Jesus Christ. Look to him, cling to him. But there are a couple more. Pastors, briefly, John, Jake, Stephen, Dan. Um, we read, we may read Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, last week's text and sermon, and this morning's chapter 2 through verse 9, and think that the New Testament equivalent to Old Testament priests is pastors, so we're all off the hook. Maybe I should have started my sermon with that. We're not off the hook. This text does apply to our pastors and pastors in general. Uh, and I, for one, don't have any indictment. I, I'm thankful for pastors who I've gotten to rub shoulders with, and I've seen uh, that they first and chiefly are in Christ, and that they want to honor Him, and do their best to live wholeheartedly devoted to Him, and teach us true instruction and everything that verses 5 through 7 said. And if you're looking for a church, that's the kind of church you want to find. It, if for some reason you're visiting here and you're trying to decide, this isn't a perfect church, but I just say that our pastors are godly men who, who love the Lord and love us. So, yes, in Christ, our pastors should and do whole, are wholeheartedly devoted to the glory of God and honoring His name. But the New Testament teaches that all Christians are priests. This is for all of us. We call this the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. Listen to these New Testament examples, 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, and verse 9 say this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For everyone here who is a Christian, you are a priest. And you have the responsibility to be a wholehearted, wholeheartedly devoted to honoring God's name in word and deed, not for your salvation, but from it. Because the covenant standard has been met for you through Christ. Perfection has been given to you in Christ. And because of what he's done, you want to be wholeheartedly devoted to him. You get to be wholeheartedly devoted to him. Wholehearted worship comes from hearts made whole. So if you're here this morning and you know you're a Christian, you've repented and believed in Jesus, but you're convicted. Maybe you, you realize you're living kind of half-hearted, devoted to God. I, I, I want to encourage you. I don't want to give you a law and say, perform better. I want to remind you that God will continue the work he started in you. 
he, he will be glorified in your life and in the nations. And I just encourage you to keep, keep coming to the Sunday gathering, and you, you will be made to be more like Christ through the word and through the singing and through the fellowship and the praying. It's okay if you're not there and you're convicted. That's evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in you. And his word says he'll continue what he started in you. Through Christ, brothers and sisters, through, through Christ, our great high priest, we, we can and we will grow in offering wholehearted devotion to God in word and deed. And he's worthy of our lives and praise for that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we praise you as much as we can with all of our hearts. We, we acknowledge that just like the priests of Malachi's day, we, we had corrupt hearts before you gave us new hearts. And we were deserving of an eternal consequence, and you saved us from that. You, you poured your wrath on the Lord Jesus Christ for the sins of all who would believe. And so out of that and from that, Lord, I pray that we would continue to seek to be priests who, who are wholeheartedly devoted to honoring your name and word and deed. Pray that you'd continue to use our church to, to speak true instruction, to turn many from iniquity, to guard knowledge, um, to point people to the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray in his name. Amen.